As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's, a.k.a. Bruce's favorite grocery store. It is, Stu. Every week I go there. It's great for the kids, great produce, and great, great frozen food and frozen dinners. Nothing goes better with game time than snacks and drinks from Trader Joe's. Bruce, did you know Trader Joe's has its own Instagram? I didn't know that, no. It's the best place to find all the info on your favorite products and the new things you didn't even know you needed. That's Trader Joe's. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, have you seen your texts, your cell numbers, your email address popping up anywhere unusual lately? Thankfully, no, Stu. But some of our friends in the media, they certainly have. They weren't so fortunate. So what we're referring to is on Thursday, Tennessee reached a settlement with former AD John Curry, who I think probably was a surprise to most people that he was still employed as of up until last Thursday, he'd been suspended all this time since the crazy coaching search last year. And Tennessee basically just unloaded, in response to public records requests, every email, text, Twitter direct message, phone call, you name it, that John Curry received or made during that hectic period when he was trying to hire a football coach. I was looking through some of the documents this morning. I've never seen anything where they just didn't redact anything. There are famous coaches. There's a lot of like marketing materials the agents sent on behalf of their clients that have references. So there's all kinds of pretty prominent coaches and ADs, personal phone numbers right in there. There's Max Olson from the All-American went through the 2200 emails to figure out who Tennessee fans wanted instead of Greg Schiano. Can you take a, you probably haven't had a chance to read it yet. Can you take a guess who is the most popular candidate for the Tennessee coaching job? My guess would be John Gruden. Well, you would think, and maybe at this point they all had come to realize that John Gruden wasn't a viable option because he was not that high on the list. Number one choice by far, Lane Kip. Really? How much things have changed in a few years? This is the same guy who they rioted in the streets practically when he left. All is forgiven, I guess, when your team is 0-8 in the SEC and Lane Kiffin scoring a bunch of points. And, yes, he got the most votes, 160 votes, 
followed by T. Martin with 111. And this one T. really... Martin, T. Martin, who, who Phil Fulmer would not even give an interview to. I know. And I'm just looking at some of these sample comments. Go hire T. Martin and end this damn circus you have caused. Please go get T. Martin. He will work harder for UT than any of the other people you're calling. And number three really surprised me with 84 votes. Less Miles. Wow. Yeah, that surprises me, too. Then Kevin Sumlin, then John Gruden. I should probably not be giving all this away. You should be going to the All-American <laughs> and reading Max's story. We also did it as a newsletter on uh, Monday morning, an abridged version of it. But, you know, it, worth noting, all the way down at number with only eight, Jeremy Pruitt, now the Tennessee head coach. How many uh, coaches were listed there? How deep does the list go for the work? Well, once you get down to... People that got two or one votes, it's dozens and dozens of people. Jim Tressel shows up on the list. Jim McElwain shows up on the list. Did Mike Houston show up on the list? I don't think so. How many did Jeff Brom get? No, Mike Houston did get three votes, same as Matt Campbell. (laughs) Same as former Tennessee coach Butch Jones. I feel like we should have kept Butch Jones. Why the hell didn't you keep Butch Jones? Because no one else wants to come. Heck, hire Butch back. I wonder how many of these people were not Tennessee fans who were just kind of throwing salt in the wound. I don't know. I started to read through them. I didn't get by no means. Did Derek get Dooley all get any votes? Derek Dooley, good question. No. But no, they're definitely from Tennessee fans. They all kind of have the same you know, I've been a season ticket holder since blah blah blah. But uh, you don't know that to be always true. I'm guessing out of twenty two hundred emails, some of them were fabricated, but no, there's a whole lot of I've been a, I mean, first of all, before you even get... These names are kind of buried. Usually, for the most part, these names were buried inside an email that was mostly ranting about how dare you possibly hire Greg Schiano. I mean, one thing I will say, one takeaway I had was I had always said coming off of that fiasco that if Greg Schiano had... Like, if the same vague accusation had come out about John Gruden, I don't think it would have derailed his candidacy, right? Because that's somebody who they actually wanted as the coach, as opposed to Greg Schiano. But those emails overwhelmingly, I mean, there's a couple that bring up his record with Rutgers, but for the most part, they are, and it's just accepted as fact. How could you possibly be talking to somebody who covered up child abuse at Penn State? Stated as fact. Failed to report child abuse. Covered up child abuse. It just became this commonly accepted fact among a certain faction of the fan base, and therefore... They were genuinely, I think, genuinely um, revolted. If Greg Schiano's record was, instead of whatever it was, 68 and 65 or whatever it is, if it was 90 and 45, you think they would have really reacted that way? I think if Greg Schiano had taken Rutgers to a couple BCS Bowls or led the Tampa Bay Bucks to the Super Bowl, what you would have seen instead, and I want to just say this is not specific to Tennessee fans. This is just how college football and fan bases operate. It's very rally around the fortress. That same exact one line in a deposition of a random insurance case where Mike McQuarrie said that he heard from a coach that Greg Schiano 25 years ago may have seen something with Sandusky would have been spun around the other way of exactly how I just described it. Instead of it being this incriminating thing that should have derailed his candidacy, it would be, oh, you can't be, why are you taking seriously this, you know, third-hand hearsay, you know, that's, you know, they would be, am I right? They would be spinning it the other way. 
Right. I mean, one of the things I had seen a little bit of was his players all hate him. He micromanages. Look, I do think Greg, you know, his reputation was, especially at Rutgers, for micromanaging. You know what, though? There's a lot of coaches who've had a lot of success, including, you know, the two guys who coached in the national title game a couple months ago who are known as, you know, micromanaging and not all their players always love them. Uh, they can be tough to tough to work around. I mean, Urban Meyer can be you know can be tough on guys. It's just there is a. I think it comes back to how much are you perceived as a winner and not. Again, if you take the Penn State connection out of there, I still think there were a lot of people who are diehard Tennessee fans who wanted no part of Greg Schiano just because they didn't see him as you know they either remembered that he didn't do well as. The Bucks coach, where they just didn't get how bad Rutgers was, and I think that was the key thing. If you had known how awful Rutgers was, you might think differently of it. I think that a lot of people wouldn't have want, wouldn't have been thrilled with the hire, but it wouldn't have caused such a massive, you know, the, there's the social media firestorm and mob mentality that broke out on that Sunday. I think you needed something as emotional as the Jerry Sandusky connection to make it just go off the rails to that extent that they ended up having to pull the offer. I think if it were just about football, they would have hired him. Some people would not have been thrilled, but you know what? A lot of USC fans weren't thrilled when they hired Pete Carroll. That's a lot true. of people he was the fifth he was the fifth choice as it was pretty well documented. So it's not that's that part's not unusual that uh, somebody somebody hires a coach who the fan base is not thrilled about and eventually they they warm up to him. I, I uh, that's a I, lot different than what happened here. I want to ask you, it sounds a little bit like the elephant in the room here, because part of the story that got so much attention from Tennessee fans is that Dan Wolken, who's a columnist for the USA Today, who we both, you know, full disclosure, know pretty well. You're the only person who refers to it as the USA Today. Okay. Sorry. All right. Well, whatever it is, it is. Um, (laughs) No, that's not the first time that's come up on here. Okay. His uh, correspondence over text message with John Curry was put out there is in these in this text dump in this document dump and let's be honest it's not a flattering look for for Dan Wolken in, in what what is uh, revealed and I'm just going to read it quick for people who haven't seen it although if you're listening to this podcast you probably have Dan Wolken to John Curry congrats and I assume it's Shiano then it was a hope so there's a smiley face icon Dan's next text great hire man seriously and then John Curry's response is going to need some help on the PR. Our people are wacko. And then Dan's response after that is... Well, no, then he forwards uh, oh, yeah, he sorry, got yeah. from somebody else. Greg, Greg Shiano, this is a forward. Greg Shiano did nothing when a victim of Sandusky approached him about his abuse as a father and a stable human being. I cannot pull for Tennessee any longer. You should not have a job, you sicko. And that's a message to John Curry. And then Dan Wolken's response and, and after that was, I'll help. Not sure they'll listen. LOL. I know he's a very good coach and is about the right stuff. It should be noted, I think, Wolken, this wasn't like Dan Wolken all of a sudden was like, oh, John Curry is asking me to be supportive publicly of a, of a controversial hire. Dan Wolken had already been a believer in Greg Schiano as a coach and I guess had written some you know some things to that effect so the fact that you know this exchange it wasn't like all of a sudden he did a 180 on how he felt about Greg Schiano just to help John Curry out what do you make of it still 
I mean, there's no question. I feel bad for Dan. I'm friends with Dan. I feel bad that this got out there because I know people are going to get on him about it, have gotten on him about it because of exactly what you just described, right? That little snippet does not look good. But, I mean, first of all, he's not the one that called the fans wacko. That was John Curry. I don't think this is all that unusual. I mean, you're getting to see a little bit of how the sausage is made in terms of stories are broken. I mean, Dan, the most important thing to note is Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, broke the news of it. Yes, he was the first person to report that this was about to happen. Okay, so in order to get a scoop like that, and you get a lot of scoops, you can say this better, test to this better than anybody, you wouldn't be able to just text John Curry out of nowhere and say, hey, it's Dan Wilkin from USA Today. Did you guys hire Greg Schiano? Like, it takes years of relationship building to get to the point where somebody would be willing to confirm something like that for you. So it's not surprising to me that they have a friendly rapport and that they joke about things like this. Also, to your point, I don't think Dan is somebody who would have a negative opinion about Greg Schiano or a neutral opinion about Greg Schiano and say, well, if John Curry says he needs help on the PR, then I'm going to write a whole column about it. This is Dan's opinion. He was probably going to write the same column regardless of whether he had this text exchange with John Curry. But I understand why it makes people uncomfortable. I'm not saying like this is the greatest thing you could have in a text exchange, but I'm saying that most conversations, not most conversations, a lot of conversations between a reporter and a source are going to look something like this because the they're two I, human beings having an informal relationship. The part that I think was a little different maybe than most, at least going to need some help on the PR, was that was a little... But again, the two most incriminating things in here were said from John, not from Dan. That's correct. That is correct. Uh, I'm just saying, like, that was a little different than, than what you see. I, you know, I will tell you, the first time I thought about, okay, what are we uh, saying in our correspondence with people who we work with but don't work next to, I think this was a Deadspin story. It came out after Cam Newton was at Auburn, and they basically had a huge document dump related, I think, to Kirk Sampson, who's the longtime SID at Auburn. And some of the people we know did not look, it was not very flattering for them either in their correspondence with Kirk Sampson. I remember thinking, and I'll, I'm going to say, like, I was not in the Edspin story, but I like Kirk Sampson a lot. I think he's, he's one of the best people, you know, in that field. But there are times when you reach out to somebody and there's a, there's a lot of pleasantries in it. And it's like, you know, in the wake of, of that, I think it, it can look, you know, kind of dubious if the way some of these things can get portrayed when you're just like, you know, you may be saying, hey, man, how you doing with all this? As if you're, you know, they're dealing with a, a PR firestorm and then all of a sudden you look like you're an enabler or, or whatnot. I mean, that's a little bit of an extreme example, but, you know, I, I definitely think about who I'm corresponding with and, and how it is. That, you know, there's a lot of people I know that they just, they like to talk on the phone. They don't like these text exchange exchanges and they're, they're uh, you know, kind of leery of how things can get either taken out of context or whatever. So it's a, uh, it's an interesting window into it. And I think because this was Tennessee, it, it got, it got a ton of attention. I will ask, I had this thing though, and it, it got on my timeline from Stephen Godfrey, who works for, for SB Nation. And it was it was after some of this had got out and, and he retweeted this story, this this tweet from one of the guys from the Braves and Birds blogs. 
So Tennessee breaks with practice and releases the contents of Curry's text. Wonder if they'll do the same when media organizations submit freedom of information requests for Phil Fulmer's text. I'm pretty sure they won't, my two cents after that. But would we see a different side, a different element of this? Would they be as com- would would Tennessee fans love that? I think they'd probably like to see in for, for full full transparency. I think it's worth noting that the school chose to do this when they're clearly, you know, making the outgo the former AD show him in a pretty bad. Oh, place. they buried him. I mean, most times schools go out of their way to shield public records as much as possible, redact as much as possible. They barely redacted anything, and then, and they. You know, I don't know. This was obviously in response to somebody's request. I mean, I think they got a lot of requests. And they weren't necessarily all the exact same request. But since when do we release people's Twitter direct messages? They release everything. And clearly just in an attempt. I mean, it's not a coincidence. It came out after they reached a settlement with him. And they want to make him look as bad as possible. So everything is in there. I just wanted to circle back real quick on the Woken thing. You know, I said the two most incriminating things were from Curry, but obviously I, I should note, Wilkins, I'll help. If you don't know, I mean, I know Dan, you know Dan. Like, if you're just a random person out there and doesn't know him or doesn't know John Curry, yeah, that looks bad. It looks like, without context, it looks like John Curry asked him for some VR help, and Dan said, sure, I'll take I'll take you up on that. So, yeah, I totally get why it looks bad. Um, it makes you cringe a little bit and realize you got to be really, really careful in any sort of correspondence with these officials and coaches, I should note at these public schools where this could turn up in a public records request. Well, it also, Stu, I did see some reaction that Dan got from other people pointing out, you know, his response on, on social media about Ole Miss and their social and their, uh, and some of the documents related to that and correspondence, you know, he kind of was having it both ways on that side of it. And I think the Tennessee fans and maybe some of the Ole Miss fans, you know, kind of took some pleasure in kind of bringing that out or bringing that up. Beyond this, so this whole thing was just fascinating window into how a coaching search works. You, you know, these are coaching searches are, you know, the most secretive thing schools do for the most part. And here they we really had, are such a clusterfuck, though. Still, that is correct. But I'm saying that because of that, we got a window in, into how this stuff operates in real time. And I don't know other ads have to speak to how much or how little this paralleled their own coaching searches. But seeing, first of all, the communication with various agents where they're pitching their clients. NC State fans now know that Dave Doran was ready to walk. Washington State fans know that Mike Leach was ready to walk because we have the actual communication from either them or their agents. But but that had been pretty... I thought that stuff had been... Certainly as it relates to Leach, I thought that stuff... No, we talked about this over the weekend, I think because you covered it so closely it was obvious to you and maybe some other diehards but like in terms of the general audience we know that i mean it was well known that he courted those people or went to interview those people but i don't think that's a lot different than seeing in plain text mike leach's agent saying i don't have the exact passage in front of me but basically reiterating how much he wanted the job dave doran's agent who john curry basically ghosted texting saying, you know, let's get this done. Come on, we're ready to get this done. There are a few of those, by the way. Let's get this done. Which gets to the point of, you know, schools often will say, oh, we never offered the job. This is the only person we offered the job to. Well, that's semantics. You may not have written up a formal offer sheet, but you have reached the point where they're saying, yep, we're ready to come. Let's get it done. Including with Dan Mullen. I don't think that had been really reported. It was always, 
Mississippi State season ended on the Egg Bowl, which was on Thanksgiving night, and by Saturday he had the Florida job. But in between there, he got awfully close to Tennessee. All right, we will get back to the podcast in a second, but since you're a boss and I am not, how exactly do you actually hire people to work in your company? What is it? What do you do? What's the process like? It's tough, Bruce. It's a challenge. You know, you have to find great talent that fits your company or your organization, but there's a lot of different ways to do it. But one way is to use ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. So right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B, as in the audible Stu and Bruce. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B, ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. One thing I'd uh, want to throw out there, right after this, I got interviewed for a book project by Mark Nagy, who is uh, who's a journalist down in Tennessee. He used to be on, uh, I don't know if he's still on TV, but he's done some writing on it. And he's been working on a book. And I got to admit, I'm fascinated by this subject. I don't think the book comes out until June or July, but you don't have to be a Tennessee fan. If you're interested in this kind of thing, I think this would be probably some fascinating reading on, as I said, this was a bleep storm of a search at the end of a completely chaotic decade of Tennessee football and just every downturn is, it's kind of very unique. I mean, Stu was talking about coaching searches and how weird they can get. Nothing like this. This is just on a whole nother level. And we haven't even, and and I want to move on to the next story, but I will say we didn't even talk about the, the key detail in the whole thing and why he ended up getting suspended. He got on a five-hour flight to, from, from Raleigh, where he was meeting with Doran, to L.A. to meet with Leach, and apparently never informed the president or anybody what he was up to. Blamed a Delta Wi-Fi outage, which, by the way, I know I've been there, I know you have, where you get on there thinking you're going to get a bunch of work done and the Wi-Fi doesn't work. But regardless, the reason he ended up getting suspended was he basically went AWOL in their minds for whatever, five, six, seven hours, during which... They were under the impression that they were about to close the deal with Dave Doran. And at that point, even though Leach was ready and ready to do it, and Curry sends an email back to the president, and I think the chancellor saying, reminding them why this would be such a great hire, they say, nope, come back to Knoxville tomorrow morning, you're done. You know, when I read this whole thing, Stu, one thing kind of came back to me. If they And I thought one of their bigger mistakes in this was to, to go, just from a PR standpoint, to go chase Mike Gundy. Not because Mike Gundy's not a good coach, because Mike Gundy, I don't think, was had any, there was any reality that Mike Gundy would have taken that Tennessee job. Oh, he played them had, for leverage. If they had gone out and instead of going for Mike Gundy, got another guy who did really well in the Big 12 and gone to Mike Leach first, Mike Leach is the Tennessee head coach right now. And do you think... Because I don't would that, think would that, that be Bill Fulmer at that point could have blocked it. Maybe he could have, but I don't. I don't know if he could have. Would you be rosier on Tennessee's future if Mike Leach were the coach today rather than Jeremy Pruitt? That's a great question. I mean, Leach has won, has has, has developed top twenty-five teams with way less resources than he would have at Tennessee. The hard thing with Jeremy Pruitt, and I've heard good things about him from people who work with him in Alabama, is. It's just he's a first-time head coach at a like in a similar situation to what uh, Will Muschamp is, ta- you know, like at a big, big school in the SEC. 
Well, uh, isn't Kirby Smart also a first-time head coach in the SEC? Yes, he was. You're right. That's a good example. I mean, I'm not the, saying he's going to do what Kirby Smart the, did, but yeah. Yeah. The difference, though, is Kirby Smart has already got Georgia going, and now you have it within your recruiting footprint. Never mind the Alabama part of this. You got you got Kirby Smart at Georgia going, put up together a massive recruiting class on top of coming off a national title trip, and you got Dabo Sweeney in an area where where the Tennessee guys typically have done really well, but now you got Clemson at a never been at this level. So I just think it makes it harder. I don't know how well Mike would have been, Leach would have been able to recruit there. I just, you know, I think he would have given people problems when they played him. But I just don't, I don't think Mike could be able to recruit at that level. But again, he's never had those resources to have a staff to, to do that. So I just don't know. I'd, I'd have been, it would have been fascinating to watch. I will say that. I mean, he would have, he would have become the new star of SEC Media Days. That's for sure. I mean, that's, it's, it's really hard. I mean, I know I threw out that question. It's really hard to answer it because they're just so, so different. You can't bring up two more opposite examples and how they would, personalities and how they would approach it than Leach, who's gotten, who's coached at the major level for many years now and has had good success, but has not had the kind of success that frankly would be considered, that, that would be acceptable at Tennessee long term. You know, they would be expecting him to compete for SEC and national titles. Stu, how many coaches right now in the SEC do you think are better coaches than Mike Leach? Three? Oh, that's probably higher. That's probably too high. So you think it might be only Saban and who? I mean, I got to say Kirby Smart. He just came within seconds of the national championship. But yeah, okay. Saban and, and Kirby may, Smart. Yeah, I might have said Jimbo in there. That would I would have thought. Yeah, that's Jimbo. Much, that's three. That's pretty much it. Leach and Mullen. I, Mullen, again, Mullen was at, at granted, Mississippi State is not an easy place to win. Dan Mullen did not do anything close to what Mike Leach did at Texas Tech. And Washington that, State is way worse than what than what uh, Mississippi State is. You know, Leach has just always been so all over the map. Like, he'll beat USC, he'll deliver Washington State, who had been so bad, and, and turn them into a top 25 team. But then he'll lose openers to FCS teams. And that awful loss at Cal this past year, his teams are just so inconsistent. Yeah, and that's frankly exactly what was Butch Jones's downfall. So, I, I think he would have made things interesting. I can't say with any sort of confidence. Oh, he would have definitely worked out better for Tennessee than Jeremy Pruitt will. Yeah, it's an interesting. It's an interesting question. It's a. It's it's a relevant question, but it's an interesting <laughs> question. Hey, I want to ask your thoughts on this while we're still in the SEC. Over the weekend, Aaron Suttles, Alabama beat guy slash Alabama radio guy reported that the Crimson Tide are in discussions to do a home-and-home home with Notre Dame. There's also talk about related with Texas, and I believe there's some consideration potentially, from what I've heard, for a USC opener in 2020. That would not, from what I heard, it would not be a home-and-home. Home. It would be a neutral site game. But getting back to the home-and-home, home, that's a little different. People have tried to take shots and have taken shots at Alabama for a neutral site and not going to play people on their home turf. How big of a deal is that? I think it's awesome. You know, I, I've, I can't blame them for the strategy of playing the neutral site games. They make a lot of money off of it. They've been very successful in it. But, you know, I went to the Florida State-Alabama game this past season at the new Atlanta Stadium. It was, for all the hype that went into that matchup, it just, it just doesn't feel, you know, it's just not as exciting. It's not as organic as if that game were taking place in either Tuscaloosa or Tallahassee. A great example of that last year was the Georgia-Notre Dame game. 
they're probably the car probably could have played that game at the Georgia Dome if they that or not the Georgia Dome, the Mercedes Benz Stadium and made a lot of money off of it. But it was so cool. Georgia fans getting to go to South Bend for the first time, taking over that stadium. Just at the end of the day, the more of these games that are still played on campus, the better. And Alabama certainly has the cachet to, to basically dictate that, whether they want to play these at Jerry World or play them at Notre Dame. My thing on this has always been when people have taken shots, I'm like, oh, okay, they played Florida State, who was a top five team going into that on a neutral site. It's much more of a challenge for them to play a, a team of a program of Florida State's caliber than if they went to Manhattan, Kansas to play K-State or if they went to Bloomington, Indiana to play, you know, to have a home and home with Indiana or, you know, you pick your mid-level power five program that they could have, you know, gone and scheduled. They could have gone to Tempe, Arizona and played Arizona State or quite honestly gone to do what Texas A&M did and do a home and home with UCLA. You know, when you pick a top 10 program and you play them, I think they, I, I kind of, try to take it for what it is as opposed to getting too caught up. But I, I do like the idea of the home and home just because I think it's 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 good for college football. But I think any way you get these games played, whether it's neutral site or not, I still think that's that's a great thing. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, I'd rather they play a neutral site game against Florida State than a game in Indiana. But they have no, there's no financial, like that would not make any sense financially. They have no incentive to play home and homes against those mid-level teams. So you know, the the formula they have right now works. One blockbuster game at the start of the season and then a FCS team and a couple other nobodies. It's just where do they play that blockbuster team? As long as they play them, I'm happy. Speaking of Alabama, any concerns about the fact that Tua uh, apparently reportedly broke his finger in, on the, in the first practice of spring? Not really. I mean, I think the more reps he he would take would certainly be the better for his development, especially with you know, kind of a new system around him a little bit, you know, because the staff did change. Brian Dayball is no longer there. He's back in the NFL. But I, I just think that, uh, you know, everything we've heard, he should be fine. It's just a matter of just less reps this spring. But uh, and I also think it's just more timing with the young receivers. But I think he can get a lot of that on his own. I mean, is it, is it would it concern you if you're an Alabama fan? The only reason it concerns me is that at the end of the day, as tremendous as that national championship game performance was, he was still a true freshman. So he still doesn't have that much experience. And this would have been his second spring. We don't know how long he'll be out. But yeah, at this point in his career, any of the, you know, any missed time in practice is a missed opportunity, especially when you've got a veteran who, Jalen Hurts, who, in terms of just familiarity in the system, is already further ahead of him. But. How- I think we both would agree that come opening day, two is going to be the starter. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe well, it's not a foregone conclusion, but I think that's where it heads. I mean, to me, this feels a little like the Cardell Jones, JT Barrett with Tua, the stronger arm guy, you know, the better passer being in the Cardell Jones mode, and JT Barrett, the leader, solid dual threat guy, the one who's got some question marks as a passer who had made a run at the Heisman before he got hurt as well. Like just Jalen Hurts you know, racked up SEC player of the year honors. Do you buy that parallel? I do. And you know, that thing for eight months was, oh my gosh, what an, remember um, Braxton Miller was in it at one point. I think the move to receiver didn't come out till right before the season. You know, what an, what an amazing luxury Urban Meyer has. Like every coach should be envious of, uh, envious of this. And I think it ended up causing him a lot more, stress than it did enjoyment you know he 
it was a thing that hovered over the team the whole season. The offense never turned into what you thought it would. You know, I think he anybody would say he he mismanaged that. And I think uh, until proven otherwise, we believe Saban will handle it well, but we'll see. Anything else uh, college football fans should be paying attention to right now? Well, we got a lot of emails. A lot of emails. I guess people Good. responded to our call to action in the last podcast. What do you say we get to, into a few of those yes. now? To your plea. They responded to your plea for help. What did I say? I don't know. You sounded desperate, too. Let's I get say call for action. You can send your emails, as always, to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Added bonus. Bruce hasn't seen these. All, all, okay. all, you know, it's always fun when you're kinda, you have no idea what's coming. Okay. In last week's episode, okay, this is just a, we had a couple people who wrote in with, you know, something we talked about, something, an example we didn't think about. In last week's episode, you took a question about programs that haven't met a level of success since firing a particular coach, and I thought it'd be worth mentioning Paul Pasqualoni at Syracuse. That's from Joe, I'll never be able to pronounce your last name, Joe, Joe Gladyshevsky. Something like that. Uh, maybe Gladyshevsky. Gladyshevsky. I've seen that name. Yeah, you're, yeah that's, uh, that's your part of the country. You probably would know. That is a, you know what? I think that's a decent answer. I mean, he did a really good job. They started to really backslide towards the end of the Pasqualoni era, but was a very underrated coach. I mean, they had it going for a good amount of time there. And then at some point, we got into a debate about Minnesota. And, oh, but, you know, I was vigorously defending Glenn Mason and using him as an example of this. And a Gophers fan says, hey, guys, I'm a loyal listener who really enjoys the pod. Thanks for everything. But as a diehard Gopher fan, season ticket holder of 15 years, I must take issue with Stu's assertion that Minnesota has never recovered from firing Glenn Mason. Mason's Big Ten record, 32 and 48. That's a 40 percent winning percentage. Jerry Kill slash Tracy Clay's Big Ten record. 20 and 29, 40.8%. So as you okay. can see, that was just, uh, <laughs> the level of mediocrity just kind of remained the same. That was from Peter Johnson, by the way. Another reason why we love our listeners, because they keep us honest. Next up, Ian McFarlane, Kirkland, Washington, Bruce and Stewart. Great work as always. Stewart, I read your piece in the All-American, parentheses, all caps, subscribe today, folks, on the potential changes to the redshirt rule. Really good stuff, but it raises a question. The redshirt rule will turn September into a virtual on-field tryout for many freshmen. With early enrollees and this September period, the number of freshmen in significant roles will only go up. The downside is that freshmen who don't perform and upperclassmen will see their roles reduced. Won't this dramatically increase the volume of transfers? It might. I think that's a possibility. I'm not sure that there's an easy workaround, though. I think that, to me, I would look at this, just thinking about it out loud, as the benefit outweigh the negative. I'm a big fan of the rule, as I wrote, and this is a rule that will go up for vote next month. The AFCA, Todd Berry's been a big proponent of it that would allow not just freshmen, but any players to play up to four games without burning their redshirt. Now, that could play out any number of ways, but I think the main, you know, as envisioned, it would be you get into November and you have your whole linebacking court injured, then you can bring in that emergency freshman guy without burning his whole season. You know, guys who are good enough to play as true freshmen are going to play as true freshmen. This is the next, this would affect the next wave down of guys who you coaches would really rather prefer to develop for a year before getting on the field. But in, you know, in some cases you just don't have a choice. Yeah, you got to ride it out. Next. Josh Ingalls, Stu and Bruce, longtime listener Long-time listener, longer-time reader. Thank you. 
why are conferences so obsessed with fixed divisions? It seems like all we ever do is talk about poorly weighted conferences, too much strength in one division over another. Why not move to a dynamic division model where every two years the conference would rearrange teams with three goals in mind? Competitive balance, rivalry protection, and ensuring all four-year players get a chance to see and play in every stadium in their conference. I like it. I just think a lot of these guys who are at the top of the food chain when it comes to decision-making are uncomfortable change and shaking things up too much. They like the familiarity. And I think that there's something to, I mean, you know which schools are in the SEC East and the SEC West. That That's just part of their identity now. And fans get excited about, we're going to compete for the East Championship. So if you just change it up every couple of years, nobody, I mean, you know, you know how hard it is for people to remember who's in which division of the ACC after 13 years. How, you know, you would get into the season and, and fans, not just of the conference, but of the country, would have to relearn it all again. They'll adjust. Leaders and legends, you know, the coastal and Atlantic people. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody ever learned of leaders and legends. I caught myself on that, yeah. So while I, I am all for anything that allows, I mean, I, it's Georgia and Texas A&M, I think, are going... They don't play each other. So A&M joined in 2012, and they still haven't played each other, and I don't think they play each other for another couple of years. So they're in the same conference, but really they're not. I, I would be well, all for anything that shortens those gaps. Well, Duke and NC State, they're so close, and yet they don't play each other or haven't played each other for a while. UNC and Wake set play so infrequently they scheduled a non-conference series with each other. Nuts. Nuts. Okay. CJ Johnson, hey, guys, coming off your going off your Nebraska talk, who reaches 11 wins first? Nebraska or Oregon? Ooh, Nebraska's in the easier division. I actually did this game last year, not the the actual game on the field. I'm going to say Oregon, but you know they have right now they have a quarterback who I think is a first round talent, and Justin Herbert, and they have some good young players on both sides of the ball. I will say Oregon if they can if they have a shot. I don't think they will get to 11 wins this year, but I think they have a better chance to do it this year. If not. I will hedge and say Nebraska in three years. That's pretty much how I feel. I, I think that my answer is Oregon, just because they're more, for, they're further along toward that. But they have a window to get it done because I think I think Scott Frost will win eleven games in Nebraska at some point, maybe even by year two or three. So they've got a window to get that done. Jeff in Dallas says to Bruce and Stu. About Oklahoma. Oklahoma has no problem recruiting talented skill position players, O-line, and secondary. However, OU struggles to recruit elite front seven talent. These are the most elusive players to find, but the missing piece for OU to win a national title. Interestingly, OU almost made it to the title game last year, even with a horrible defense. This was due to, more than anything, a transcendent quarterback. The question, what is OU's solution to recruit elite front seven talent on defense? I mean, they've had some big-time guys that people wanted. Neville Gallimore is a good example. He came out of Canada. You know, he certainly looks the part when you see him move and everything. I mean, they've had some of those players. They just haven't had enough of them, or they haven't really developed. I mean, it's, it's been a long time since they had anything close to, to Gerald McCoy there, and I think that's, that's certainly one of the things that hold them back. I mean, it, you know, again, I, I go back to... You know, Gallimore was a guy a lot of people really wanted. They just, uh, you know, there was a, they had a, a guy a couple of years ago, maybe it was the same class, Marquise Overton, who was a pretty dynamic athlete. And, you know, they just, they just haven't blossomed the way some of their skill guys have developed. 
I think there was a time when they were getting guys like Gerald McCoy and Tommy Harris and that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. And then you just you look up and go, wait a minute, it's been that long since OU had some elite players along the defense. I think it's hard because of the conference they're in and the system that they play. It's not like there aren't big defensive linemen who are coveted recruits coming out of the state of Texas, which is where, you know, which is OU's pipeline. But if you are that player, you're going to go to Oklahoma where you play these wide-open offenses every week and they generally have trouble stopping them, or you're going to go to Alabama or LSU or Georgia, somewhere in the SEC where they're known for producing those kind of players. Yeah, I'm just looking back. In 2016, they had two guys who were four-star, you know, top 15 at their position, D-lineman, Mark Jackson and Amani Bledsoe. Right now, neither one has you know, created any buzz at this point. So we'll see what they do. I'm, I'm not as... You know, those guys are still, you know, 2016 isn't that long ago, so it's still pretty early, you know, in the development. We got any more? I think that's good for now, though. I will say that Tim Brando was a very popular podcast guest. We had several emails complimenting that podcast with him. We had a bunch. Did we really not say Philip Fulmer as an example of a school firing coach and then failing to get back to that level? Because we sure had a lot of emails about that. And frankly, I would think that would have been the first name that came to mind, but apparently not. And then, you know, not all the emails are fun. We did get some negative feedback from Jason Grant. Basketball, I don't subscribe to your college football podcast to listen to March Madness talk. I'm sorry. He's right. We couldn't rein Tim in. We didn't know Tim was going to talk about all the personnel stuff. He's right. It's Tim's fault. And it's our fault for not reining Tim in, but nobody can rein Tim in. Yeah, let's blame it on Tim, even though you and I, I believe, the week after the bracket came out, talked for like 20 minutes about it just ourselves. Yeah. It has been a great tournament, by the way. It has, but we don't need to talk about it anymore. We've already killed that. Okay. Well, as always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Spink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. Talk about it for years